I'm delighted to see you here. My wife says I'm a little ramped up. That was her word this morning. I'm not sure exactly what she means when she says I'm ramped up. I, I accused her of being Eeyore this morning. You know the, uh, the donkey on the uh, Winnie the Pooh? And uh, I think she thinks that maybe I'm nuts, but uh, that's okay. She's, she's home today um, fighting off a chest infection, cold, whatever it is. And uh, hopefully she's listening, so she's right over home right now going, oh, Dan, be quiet, don't talk about me. But if she's able to hear our live feed. We have been much interrupted in our study through Second Thessalonians, my fault, as we've brought in different speakers and had other things that we're talking about. Remember, first Sundays of the month, we're talking about the church, so that's interrupting it. Last week, we had a great Bible conference with Dr. Larry Oates. Many weeks ago, we were in chapter one. Remember we talked about trouble. This world is trouble. It's full of trouble. It's a broken world we live in, and the Thessalonians knew they were living in a broken world, and so they were overwhelmed by the trouble. Not only is there trouble in our broken world, but there are troublers in our broken world. Sometimes people are troubled just because they're sinners and they do selfish things. Sometimes I'm troubled because I'm a sinner and I do selfish things. But sometimes people are evil. They know they're trouble and they're bent to be trouble. Let me tell you, there's something good. Well, there's revenge anyway. Look at chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, starting with verse 6. Since it's a righteous thing with God, not you. You don't get to take revenge on those who trouble you. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. I believe this text is talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19 talks about Jesus coming back to rule and reign on planet earth. I believe that will happen. That literally Christ himself in the flesh, God and man, the descendant of David, will rule from David's throne in Jerusalem during a period of time that I call the millennial. I call it the millennium because Revelation talks about 1,000 years in Revelation chapter 20. I believe this is talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's not talking about the rapture of the church. Which I think is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18. So Paul talks about the, or, or the revelation of Jesus Christ here. And then he switches a little bit. In chapter 2 verse 1 we saw a couple weeks ago as we walked through the first 12 verses there. That there's a little Greek conjunction, day, D-E, as we transliterate it. That, that where Paul, it's translated in our, my Bible is now, K 
can be, but, or now concerning, or on the other hand, the different ways that this can be translated. Paul now shifts to talking about the rapture of the church and our gathering to Christ. And we saw last time that there are two weeks, two things that must happen before that gathering of the church. You see, the Thessalonians, they, because of all the trouble they were going through in chapter 1 that he talks about, they thought, and they were being taught by some people erroneously, that they were in the tribulation. That they had somehow slipped into that period of time when the Antichrist was ruling and Satan was having his day. They thought they were experiencing the wrath of God. They couldn't imagine it getting worse. You ever had a day like that? When physically you're beat up? When financially you're bereft? When it just seems that mother and father and and son and daughter are against you? That there's no way that you're going to come out of this one alive? And by the way, none of us do. And you go, this has got to be the worst it gets. No, 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 it's not. There is a day coming, as prophesied by Isaiah and Jesus, and it fills the book of Revelation from chapter 6 all the way through the end of chapter 18. And I call it, well, I don't call it, often people have called it the Great Tribulation. It is a time of God's wrath on this planet like to which we've never seen before. And during that terrible time of wrath, where there will be famine and pestilence and there will be wars upon wars, you think there are orphans now. You think the church is being persecuted in China now. The righteous people in that day will be persecuted like never before under the rule of the Antichrist. In fact, natural disasters will be such that people will say to the mountains, please fall on me and kill me because I want to get out of here. That's how desperate people will be during that time. The Thessalonian church thought it was already now. They thought this period of time was already happening. In verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, no, 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 no. Two things have to happen before that can come on the earth. Number one, the church has to be gathered to him. And number two, the Antichrist is going to have to be revealed. These two things must happen first. Paul assures his readers that they are not part of the day of tribulation. And and we should be assured of that too. Just as Paul assured the Thessalonian church, so we should take confidence that we are not going to be in that day, that day of the Lord, when God righteously judges the nations of the earth and the Antichrist. I am not going to be here. The church of Jesus Christ is going to be snatched out of this place. Well, at the end of that text last week, we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Look at it with me. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. And for this reason, because of the fact that they've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, Perhaps you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard that you're a sinner. You've heard that you need to trust Jesus completely for your soul's salvation. But you say, you know what? I don't want to do it. It costs too much. 
I'll have to change my friends if I do that. I'll have to change the, the, the goals I have for my life if I ask Jesus to be my Savior. I can't do that. If I do that, I'm going to lose everything I want. So what happens the day the church is snatched out of here and this congregation is gone for the most part? Maybe your mom's gone and your grandma's gone and your dad is gone and everybody that you knew was a believer is gone. Then you'll say, well, pastor, if that happens, <laughs> I'm not an idiot. I'll say, oh God, please save me. I made a mistake. No, no. No, you won't. You know, the Pharisees knew Jesus was God. They saw miracles. Can you imagine? There were those who were fed at the feeding of 5,000 who the next day said, show us a sign. Hello? He just took a kid's lunch and fed 15,000 people. And you want him to show you a sign that he is God? Dead people lived. <laughs> you want a, a sign that he's God? And yet they asked for another sign because they did not want to believe. And if you, my friend, have made a decision to be an unbeliever, you've decided not to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then in that day, when the Antichrist rules, you will believe the lie that he is God. You will believe the lie that the Antichrist has the answers to all of your problems. You will believe in the Satan-indwelt God of this world, and you will not accept Jesus as your Savior, just as the Pharisees did not accept Jesus as the Christ when he walked on this planet. I believe verses 11 and 12 of 2 Thessalonians 2 are a severe warning to those who would mess around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he starts chapter 2, verse 13, today's text with that same Greek conjunction. This time it's translated, but. He's, he's, he's shifting a little bit. He's, he's comparing with what he just talked about, the warning of those who would not receive Jesus as your Savior, those who would mess around with their faith and not believe and not do what they ought to do. He says, but. Let me read it. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two fantastic verses talking about our salvation in Christ. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, after this nasty warning where he says, hey, if you don't believe Jesus is your Savior, if you don't trust Jesus now, when the Antichrist is in charge, you won't believe. But you know what, Thessalonians who are troubled? You know Thessalonian church that's worrying and fretting? I'm confident you're not one of those people, he says. How does he know that? How does he know that this church in Thessalonians was not going to go into the tribulation, that they, they were people he could give thanks for. Note the truths about people for whom God, Paul gives thanks in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. Number one, they were beloved by the Lord. Beloved. I don't go around saying hello, beloved. <laughs> but it's, 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 the, the verb tense is both past and continuing action. They have been loved and are being loved by Jesus. And the word Lord 
is not a, the theos they're talking about God. It's rather talking about master. It's kyrios. It's talking about the guy that's in charge. You're beloved by Jesus. You, you are loved in the past when he died on the cross. You are being loved today by Jesus. That's the kind of people that he was thankful for. The kind of people. Believers are those for whom Christ gave himself. <laughs> and he is their master. Number two. Notice that the people that Paul gave thanks for were people loved by the Lord. They were people chosen for salvation. They were people chosen for salvation. And I think that Paul colors that word chosen for salvation with three phrases. Note first, from the beginning. Absolutely nothing cements my confidence in my salvation more than knowing that God has always known about my salvation. Can God change? Say no. Can God change? Does he know I'm saved today? Did he know I was saved when he made Adam? That I would be saved? Will he know that I'm saved tomorrow? Then if God cannot change and he knows of my salvation, then God would have to <laughs> cease to be God. For me not to be saved. He says from the beginning. I was chosen. He is eternally the same. God's not going to change on that. You know I think that God intended his doctrine of our choosing from the beginning. To be an issue of great comfort for us and not of conflict. In ignorance about what comes first. The chicken or the egg. Christians for 2,000 years have argued about what comes first. God's choosing of us. Or his foreknowledge of our choosing of him. You know what I think? I think God in heaven looks down and goes, Guys, you don't get it. I don't think like you think. You can't figure this one out. That's what I think that God thinks. That we're chosen for salvation from the beginning. What great confidence we should have in that. And notice, secondly, those chosen for salvation are through sanctification by the Spirit. The word sanctification literally means being set apart. There is no salvation aside from being set apart. You can't be in the world, of the world, love the world, and, and be a Christian. It doesn't work that way. We are being set apart by the Spirit. That my definition of our sanctification today is that process by which God is saving me today from the authority, the power of my sinful flesh, my sinfulness. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't have to sin. Let me say that again. Believers don't have to sin. Do we sin? Yes, because sin is in us. In, in, in our thinking and teaching, often we talk about this as the second step. We talk about our justification and then we talk about our sanctification. And I think that's okay for us to do that because in our human mind we need to organize stuff so it makes sense to us. But I don't think God thinks about justification and sanctification as two separate things. I think the mind of God, if he is making you a Christian today, it is something that he has determined to do always, that in his justification of you, he had eternally planned his sanctification of you. I think God sees us as a redeemed walk, as a sanctified walk. Those chosen for salvation have been chosen from the beginning. Those chosen for salvation are through sanctification in this, by the Spirit, and, and they are also chosen by belief in the truth. 
in the truth. There's only one doctrine that saves. Only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the heaven. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not that there's, you know, the Baptist truth and the Methodist truth and the Presbyterian. No, it doesn't work that way. There's no, well, that's your truth. That's my truth. That's their truth. No, there is only truth. And all truth is God's truth. And Jesus said he was the truth. There's only one gospel. Faith or belief is the actualizing part of that salvation. Without faith it is impossible to please God. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 says. For he who, God, he who knows God must believe that he, he who comes to God rather, must believe that he is. You, you, you must have faith to see God. You must have faith to believe God. So faith is the actualizing. It's the the exercise of our salvation, it is, it, it is the um, making it happen part of our salvation. Paul writes in another place, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The Holy Spirit gives us grace that then partners with and cooperates with the faith exercised in the life of the believers. Note the truths about the people for whom Paul gives thanks. Number one, these people are beloved by Jesus. These people are chosen for salvation. Those people are those who are called by the gospel. Romans 11, Paul will say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Salvation does not come through a soup kitchen. It's not bad to feed people who are hurting. It's good to have a food pantry. We're going to give canned foods to the food pantry. That's not a bad thing. Canned food doesn't save people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that which saved people. Salvation does not come through a trip. You can't go to Jerusalem to get saved or go to Mecca to be saved. Salvation does not come from a dream. Every once in a while somebody will say something to me like this. I'll say, do you, do you know that you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior? I, I, have, you, have you received Christ? Do you know that you're a Christian? And every once in a while someone will give a story, something like my grandma Leeds used to say, Oh, one night I was laying in bed, and while I was laying in a bed, I saw the words of a song. You know what? I'm glad you had that wonderful experience. It makes you feel good about yourself. That doesn't save anyone. Salvation comes by faith in the word of God. Salvation comes by believing what God has said and obeying that truth. Those who are called by our gospel, Paul says here. Salvation does not come through a dream. Salvation does not come through great art or impressive music. <laughs> we have music here at Trinity Baptist for the purpose of teaching theology and helping the people of God to worship collectively. But we're not trying to impress. You say, perhaps you say this morning, yeah, I noticed that. This, no, you know, it's, it's not about art. It's not about impressing Because that doesn't save anybody. What saves people is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he says, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reason for your salvation. The gospel's purpose. Did you know that Jesus did not die to keep you out of hell? Jesus died that God may receive glory in your becoming like Christ. 
That's why Jesus died. That, that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you would be like Jesus in the Bible study we're doing this morning in Sunday school. We came to a place where, remember when God said about Christ, both at his baptism and at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, this is my son and I'm pleased with him. So do you know how you can be pleasing to God? Be like Jesus. To the extent that you are like Jesus, you are pleasing to God. And you are proving your salvation. What a great and awesome review of our salvation these two verses are. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Note as I walk through this, I'm going to teach some theology here. Our salvation is triune. Think about it this way. Our salvation is triune. Believers are justified when God declares them free from the penalty of sin. This is a finished work. Believers are justified when God declares them free. That's our justification. He declares us righteous. Secondly, believers are being sanctified as God delivers them from the power or the authority of sin in their life. You don't have to serve sin anymore. This is a progressive work. It is happening today in the life of Dan Leeds. And that's how I know that I've been justified because of the progressive work that's taking place. I am not perfect. I am not finished. I'm a sinful man, but God, because of his justification in my life, is sanctifying me. He's working, and believers will be, third part of our salvation, will be completely glorified someday when God delivers us from the presence of sin. The completion of this is a future work. It's not now. It hasn't happened yet, but someday I will be completely free from any bondage of this old world. And he comes to chapter 2, verse 15. I believe this is the key verse of the whole book. This is why Paul wrote the book. He says, therefore. Okay, every time you study the Bible and you come to the word therefore, you've got to look back to see what it is therefore, right? And so he just talked about our salvation. And before that, he talked about a warning concerning those who would mess around with their salvation. And before that, he talked about the rapture of the church. And before that, he talked about the return of Jesus Christ in great glory. All of this in the context of all the troubles they're receiving. (coughs) Therefore, in light of all those things, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Whether by word or by our epistle. Paul says there's something you need to do. I titled this sermon, Meanwhile, dot, dot, dot. I had to look this up. Most of you probably know that dot, 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 the word, it means it, it's called an ellipse. Yep, yep. Did I say it right? Ellipsis? Please, please don't make fun of my ignorance. Anyway, dot, dot, dot. Go ahead and make fun of my ignorance. The, meanwhile, because we're here, this is how we should be behaving. That's what he's saying in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, we're supposed to do something. God's grace does not exclude man's works. James says that faith without works is dead being alone so god expects us to do something once we've received god as our savior once we've received christ notice the two commands that he has here a.t robinson robertson called these commands the practical conclusion from god's elective purpose in such a world crisis stand fast and hold the traditions you've been taught I understand there's a caravan approaching the United States. I wonder if the U.S. military is going to take on this motley crew. What a disaster that would be. What should we do about it? 
We should stand fast and hold the traditions we've been taught in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what that means in that situation. We are bombarded by lies from politicians of all political parties this time of year. Each out besting the other in the lies they tell. What should we do? We should stand fast and hold the traditions we've been taught. Our country is becoming increasingly ignorant of and hostile to Christianity. What should we do? We should stand firm and hold fast to the traditions we've been taught. We have so many in our congregation currently who are hurting. I don't know when I've been to the hospital or to the nursing home more often than I have in the last weeks. And, and, and people I love dearly are just done, exhausted at the end of their rope. What should we do? We should stand firm and hold on to the traditions we've been taught. We are stretched and we are tired. We have colds and the days are getting shorter. Stand firm and hold on to the traditions that we've been taught. Stand fast, he says. One Greek word translated those two words. In my vernacular, I think stand firm is a better translation. Fast to me means speed up. Two applications are applied by Paul's use of this stand firm. Number one, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't give up the ship. Don't abandon Christianity. Don't stop serving Jesus. Stand firm. Don't quit. Keep on. (laughs) The whole chapter, don't say that Paul, writing from prison later on, doesn't understand stuff like this. He understands the troubles that they were in. He'd already been stoned and, and, and had been left all night in the deep once. He'd floated around on a, on a log all night in, 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 a, in a ship problem that we didn't even hear about in the, in the book of Acts any place. Paul says, stand firm. Don't quit. When I hear the word stand firm, I think a second thing that is implied is I, is I did some research on that word. And that's yet holding the line. Not only don't quit, but persevering, but holding the line. <laughs> One of my favorite things is to go watch the old newsreels of the guys who went in at D-Day. You ever gone back and looked at that? Used to be what the History Channel showed nothing of with World War II, but you know, now they you know, show like how to make a knife. It's, anyway, um, back in the day, though, with, go, go look, look up those old history videos. You see them on the boats the night before they invaded. And there were... Hundreds of men packed like sardines into those boats. And then would come a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Protestant minister. And they would all say their prayers for those guys. And those guys knew what was going to happen in the morning. Testimony of a German machine gun operator. He said, my gun got too hot to handle as I mowed down wave after wave of the men coming off those boats, but they just kept coming. Stand firm. Stand firm means grab a hold of the line. It means stand with those people who are not going to go away. They're going to hang on to Christianity. They're going to do what they need to do. You say, Pastor, you know what? Nobody else believes that baptism is necessary as a picture of our salvation. And nobody else thinks that you need to get baptized just to live... To, 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 be, to walk a Christian walk. Nobody believes that anymore. Stand firm. Don't, don't quit. Pastor, you know, there's this really cool radio preacher, and, and he doesn't believe the things that you believe. Stand firm. Hold the line. 
Two commands concerning our meanwhile, dot, 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 stand firm. Number two, hold the traditions you were taught. Paul received his traditions from Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the other apostles. He delivered these traditions everywhere he went. We have these traditions in the scriptures. We must not, we cannot fudge what we believe because a new idea might seem to be more attractive. Every doctrine that we believe that we receive must be first run through the sieve of what God's word says, the things that we've been taught, the things that we've received. Don't stand firm merely as a show of strength. Stand firm because of the doctrine we've received. And the purpose of standing firm is the glory of God. And so Paul shifts into 16 and 17, into two verses. They're a prayer. At first, as I read them, it it sounds like a doxology. It sounds a little bit like Paul uh, often finishes his books. Maybe it's a blessing of, of these, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. First note to whom God, Paul prayed. He prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. He says, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Charlie, I really struggled with that word, himself. What's, what's it doing there? You, you know, you, you don't need it. And, and yet, I, I see that there's a singular verb. You don't say, it doesn't say Jesus and God have. It says, <clears throat> Jesus and God has. And I realize the has is the who, but is the who referring to God or Jesus? Is the who plural there? Okay, himself. And, and, and so I, I wish I knew Greek better. I went back and, and I looked in, in the text and that word himself is at the beginning of the sentence. So, so actually, the way I would write it if I was trying to organize it like the Greek is now... May himself, Jesus Christ and God, who has, himself has, loved us. Jesus and the Father he's addressing, there's a a unity here. That the Godhead is completely in this idea of loving and working for the believers together. There's There's no separation between Christ and God. To whom Paul prayed, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father... And note, secondly, to whom Paul prayed, he who by grace loved us and has given us eternal encouragement and a wonderful hope. I tried to imagine this. I, 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 I thought of, uh, you know, we're in a race. We're in a race. And like the loving father he is in life's race, God runs alongside of us, encouraging us and promising us wonderful things when we complete the race. Like, Maybe ice cream at Kelly's or a root beer float. To whom did God pray? To whom did Paul pray, rather? To Jesus, to God, who love us and want to encourage us and give us what we need. For what did Paul pray? Notice first he prayed for encouragement for the believer's spirits. Encouragement, he says, may... The God who loved us and has given us everlasting consolation. First, he says, comfort your hearts. 
I call that encouragement for the believer's spirits. Life can be hard. Sin is ever-present. Relationships are fickle. People are nasty and selfish. Our bodies are breaking down. I'm being reminded more and more that I'm dying even as I stand here. Everything I fixate on is wrong. And we can live life that way. Or we can be comforted. We can be assured of our salvation. We can rejoice because we are loved. If, If you color in your Bible like I do, don't forget to color beloved in verse 13. And then again, who has loved us here in verse 16. What a wonderful thing that the God who saves us loves us. The God who saved us is working in our life because he loves us. He who is love. <laughs> he, cannot just, he cannot help himself but love us. If God is God at all, he loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are loved by God? You say, Pastor Leeds, then why did God make me like this? He loves you. You say, Pastor Leeds, then how come nobody else seems to love you? God loves you. This is what God's words say. He who is love loves you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he especially loves you and desires to comfort you with that love. Baby sobs. Sometimes babies are, are crying. I, I laugh because they have such a narrow perspective. A baby who's starving and has a dirty diaper and has cried for more than two seconds, they think the world has ended. You ever notice that? They're just completely distraught. And then mama comes and picks them up and she begins to coo to them and she begins to rock them and they are comforted. They are comforted. That's what God does. May the God who loved us and has given us everlasting consolation comfort your hearts. Paul prayed for encouragement for these believers' spirits. And second, he prayed for strength for ministry by words and actions. Comfort your heart and establish you in every good work and word. Have you ever been convinced that you absolutely cannot? Have you ever been convinced that you just have to quit? Have you ever been convinced that there's no end to the trouble? When it comes to that day, with shipwrecked Paul, we need to say, Sirs, I believe God. With David, we need to think that giant of pain, that giant of depression, that giant of old age, that giant of a broken relationship, that giant of sin is defying God. What a fool he is. What a fool that giant is. He has no idea what's coming his way. Jesus is coming again. He's going to take the church out of this sin-soaked world and then minus the Holy Spirit's restraining power on this world, all hell is going to be broken loose And God's wrath is going to be poured out on this poor planet. Meanwhile, those who are justified, who are being sanctified and are awaiting our finished glorification, we need to stand firm. We need to hold on to what we've been taught. And we need to be comforted and strengthened to the word and to the work which we have been given to do. Why do you get up in the morning? Why why do you keep on? Why are you here today? 
I have to keep going because I believe that Jesus is coming back. And because I believe that Jesus loved me and that he's coming back for me, I believe that he's left me here to glorify him and for a work that I need to do. And so I need to stand firm. And I need to hold the tradition I've been taught. And I need to keep on keeping on. Bow your heads, close your eyes.